Let's pray together. Although we come before you uh, with humility, wanting to um, both understand your word, but also for it to pierce our hearts that we know how to live it out in the ways that you're calling us to, to bear your image and your likeness to the world around us. So come now, Holy Spirit, and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we started um, our exploration of the book of Colossians by recognizing the expansive nature of God's salvation in Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior of all things. Uh, the, the poem of Colossians 1 just keeps repeating over and over, all things were created by him, all things were created through him, all things were created for him. He is before all things. He is the head of all things. In him, all things hold together. Through Jesus, God was reconciling all things to himself. It's this expansive salvation for all. Um, But what these outside threats, you know, Paul's been talking a little bit about um, these outside threats to the Colossians, the warning that he offers in this letter. And one of the things that these outside threats were doing was that they were trying to reduce the expansive nature of, of salvation in Jesus. And they were doing so by saying that it's only for a select few. It's only for those who have a special knowledge if that threat was a Gnostic sect. Or it was only for those who understand a deep mystery if it was this mystery cult. Or it was only for those who perform certain ascetic practices if that's what the group was calling for. Whomever it was, whoever Paul had in mind, or maybe it was a, a number of these different groups, whomever it was, what they were trying to do was to restrict God's saving work in Jesus. And Paul just keeps saying, no, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, Christ in you, the hope of glory, nothing more. There is nothing else that needs to be added to the salvation that you have received in Jesus. He is all sufficient, Paul keeps saying. Do not let anyone try to convince you that um, God's saving work in Jesus is restricted to something more than Jesus or to a select group of people. Jesus is the savior of the whole world, and through him, salvation has been open to all, Paul keeps saying. And so as we turn to Colossians 3 now, we're turning to what is commonly known as the, the ethical portion of Paul's letter. One commentator said this, that chapter 3 begins what normally is called um, the ethical section of the epistle. This follows a general trend in Paul's epistles in which he first deals with theological issues and then builds his ethics upon that foundation. So Paul has built this theological foundation of the all-sufficiency of Jesus, that nothing else is necessary for salvation, and that it has been opened and accomplished for all. And now he's trying to invite us to live into that reality, to put on the salvation that we have received in Jesus and to walk in him is what Paul is saying. And that ethic centers around two things. It centers around our deeds, so the way that we act towards one another, and it centers around our words, the way that we speak to one another. And that's why this passage ends with this important admonition that whatever you do in both word and deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul is advocating here, that whatever we do in word or deed, we do in the name of Jesus, that we do in accordance with the salvation that we have received in him. And so the goal that we see in this passage 
is to live into the unity that we have in Jesus, that he is the savior of all things, and that he has called us together into his one body, that together our life is hidden with Christ in God. This is where our salvation lies. And so I've made a slide, Andre, if you wouldn't mind pulling that up, and you can leave it up for a little while because I'm going to refer to it a few different times. But I've made a slide here, uh, verses 5 through 16, that I hope is helpful for you. But what you see is that I've highlighted, highlighted it in three different sections, <clears throat> or three different colors, pardon me. And the green part, I think, uh, represents um, the goal that Christ is calling us to. It's the reason why we have this ethic that we're called to live into. Verse 11 says that there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And in verse 15, it says that we are called into one body. And the point here is that the old self, as we'll see in more detail in a minute, acts selfishly and wants to restrict salvation to a select few. It wants to establish boundary markers of who's in and more importantly, who's out, who can be excluded. But Paul is reminding us that Christ's salvation is not a limited resource. We're not to have a scarcity mindset with God's salvation. God's salvation is open to all, Jew, Greek, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, circumcised, uncircumcised. Christ is all and in all. There's no scarcity here. And then we are called together into that one body of Christ. It's not about drawing lines of division about who's in and who's out, but, it's, but about seeing that we already belong to one another in the body of Christ through the salvation that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so the goal of this ethic is that we are trying to learn to live into and put on the unity that has already been achieved in Jesus, that we have been made a new people by dying and rising with Christ was the language used in chapter two, and that those old lines of division no longer apply. And that goal in green, again, I suggest, is to be lived into pursued by our deeds and our words, more specifically by how we love one another and by how we speak to one another. And so I've set up this slide with verses 5 through 11 on one side and verses 12 through 16 on the other, as you can see, so that you can see the way Paul contrasts our words and deeds. The words and deeds of the old self are in verses 5 through 11 on one side, and the words and deeds of the new self are in verses 12 through 16 on the other side. The deeds are highlighted in yellow, the words are highlighted in blue. And what I really want you to think about today is to see this contrast between the two of them. And so if we begin with the contrast of the actions, the deeds in yellow, you'll see that the contrast is between true Christian love in verses 12 to 14 with a false caricature of love in verse 6. That's what I think is really at the heart here. Verse 6 is not just an abstracted sexual ethic that Paul is putting forth. He's not just saying, don't be sexually immoral. Don't be ruled by your passions and evil desires and all those types of things. Though, of course, that's true. But there's a larger point that he's making here, and that is that these are examples of false love. They have the appearance of what we might call love, but they're a caricature of the real thing. And that's why Paul talks about covetousness in this verse, because 
The sexual immorality that he's talking about is entirely selfish. It's about using other people to get what, what it is that we want from them. It's not about sex within the confines of marriage where people have committed themselves to one another in lifelong covenantal love and responsibility, self-giving to one another. It's about selfish gratification in which covetousness and idolatry is just, you know, it's, it's the same thing, just dressed in different clothes. And what helps us see that this isn't just an abstracted ethic here is, the, is, if I'm right, that this is meant to be contrasted with verse 14, where Paul specifically says, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So all the characteristics that Paul has just mentioned in verses 12 through 13, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, all of this is meant to be an expression of genuine Christian love, bearing with one, or one another, forgiving one another, meant to be an expression of true love. The false love of the old self is self-centered and selfish because it's living out of that scarcity model where everything's restricted, that there isn't enough to go around, so I need to get what I can from other people and use other people and exclude other people. The new self gives itself to others in love because it believes that we can actually belong to one another as the one body of Christ. There is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And therefore, I do not have to operate from that scarcity mindset. I don't have to try and just get what is mine. I can give myself to others in genuine Christian love. And I can do so because I'm following the Savior of the whole world who gave himself in love for all. And so beyond just this sort of abstracted idea of sexual ethics, I believe that this passage is calling us to genuine Christian love for one another because we believe that Jesus is the Savior of all, Christ is all and in all, and that we are bound to one another in the one body of Christ. And then we see the contrast continue with the words that we speak to one another and that's in blue. In verses 8 and 9, we see the words of the old self. They're used as weapons to hurt and harm other people. Words are used to, to put a distance between us and others so that we feel safe and secure in our little bubbles. So we use anger to push people away. We use words of wrath to get revenge. We use words of malice to hurt and harm others. We use slander to tear people down. We use obscene talk to defame people. We lie in order to protect our fragile egos and to hide our shame. The point is that we use words to harm others and push them away and hide our true self so that we can't be hurt. But all this does is leave us alone and isolated and with barriers around us, and it leads us to captivity. And instead... The vision that Paul paints for us in verse 16 is to let the word of Christ dwell richly within us, for us to be shaped first and foremost by the word of Jesus to us and Jesus as the word of God for us. And then as we are shaped by the word of Christ, 
we then use, learn to use words not to separate and isolate ourselves from other people, but to be like Jesus and move towards other people. To teach, to admonish, to build up. To use words to strengthen and encourage others, not to tear them down. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. We encourage and admonish one another. The point is that both our words and our actions are meant to draw us closer to one another in genuine Christian love, not divide us and pull us apart into our own selfishness and our own sin. And now one of the things I find so helpful about this passage is how realistic it is. It doesn't say that if everyone sets their heart and mind on Christ, that they'll all agree. That's the beginning of verses 1 through 3. It says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To seek the things of, uh, above is to set our, our hearts and our wills on God. And then it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. So it's setting our hearts and minds on God. But it doesn't say that if we do that, everything is going to be easy. Everyone will automatically agree with each other and that there won't be friction. In fact, verses 12 through 16 presume that there will be conflict in the body of Christ. Why else would we need to be compassionate to one another and humble with one another? Why else would we need to bear with one another and forgive each other? Unless there's conflict, unless there's disagreement. This passage presumes that there is conflict and disagreement within the body of Christ. And therefore, it's telling us specifically how to work towards unity or foster those bonds of unity that exist within the one body of Christ when we disagree with each other and when we have conflict together. It's trying to show us how to live in unity together. And for me, I think this is particularly helpful right now because I think that the body of Christ is conflicted. Uh, and in disagreement, and particularly around the issue of vaccine passports, that seems to be the, the issue of the moment right now within the body of Christ. I say that generally, but even within our own church as well, there's people that disagree on this subject. There are some of us who are adamantly opposed to vaccine passports, and some of us who are adamantly in favor of vaccine passports. Both sides, I believe, are setting their hearts and their minds on Christ, as we're called to in verses 1 through 3, yet they are coming to opposing conclusions on the issue. Some have set their hearts and minds on Christ and feel that they cannot allow the government to have a say in the life of the body of Christ, so they need to take a stand on this. Others have set their hearts and minds on Christ and do not think that the government is trying to meddle in church affairs per se, but that the government is simply trying to use all the tools at their disposal to deal with this virus and that the church is called to aid the government in that fight. Both sides are setting their hearts and minds on Christ, both sides coming to opposite conclusions. So what do we do? eventually we're going to have to make some sort of decision on this. But I do believe that Colossians 3 gives us the right framework to be thinking about this issue and to act towards one another and to speak towards one another in the midst of this. 
So here's what I think Colossians 3 is calling us to. It's calling us to unity and not division. To commit to staying together as the one body of Christ and not being divided. We can disagree, but we are still to remain united as the one body of Christ, recognizing that Christ is all and in all. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not just with Jews, not just with Gentiles, not just with the slaves, not just with free. When we think that Christ is just on our side, those who are for the vaccine passports or those who are against, that's when we do wrong. We need to recognize that Christ is on both of those sides and find a way to come together as one in Christ. It calls us to have compassionate hearts towards one another. Compassion is not looking down our nose at the other person, just waiting for them to figure it out because we know that we're right. Compassion actually means to suffer alongside the other person. Co-suffering, suffering with. And so that means that we're willing to do everything that we can, everything within our power to try to understand the point of view of the other person, to put ourselves in their shoes and to understand why this is such a struggle for them. Why are they struggling with this so much, regardless of what side they're on? Why does this matter so much to them? To try to understand that to the best of our abilities and to join them in that suffering, to, to suffer alongside of them. That's what having compassionate hearts means. It calls us to kindness. To literally move towards the needs of our brothers and sisters. To act towards them in love committing ourselves to meeting their tangible needs. So what happens when we disagree with each other is we can get in our little enclaves, our little bubbles, our little silos, and we don't move towards the other. But to, to, to be kind is not just to speak uh, words of kindness, which is true, so refusing to speak an Ill, will, uh, Ill word against the other person, but also still refusing not to be siloed and moving towards the other in tangible acts of love. means you answer their phone calls. This passage calls us to humility, a recognition that we don't know everything and we don't see all sides of every issue and that we could be wrong on this. It calls us to meekness, a refusal to bully and coerce other people into agreeing with us a refusal to use any power or position or leverage that we might have to compel other people to do what we want them to do. It calls for patience. A recognition that uh, this might not be resolved as quickly as we'd like, but we're, we're not going to shortcut that process. We're going to stay together and try and work this out together. It's a willingness to bear with one another and forgive each other that if we do hurt and harm one another, which we're likely to do, then we're willing to forgive one another because we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. In summary, it calls us to love one another in the way of Jesus. And that's not a one-way street. This isn't just about the other person. If you're sitting there sort of nudging your spouse and thinking this is about the other person, this is about both of us. We all need to hear this. 
This has to be a two-way street in order for this to work. Both sides have to be willing to heed this call to compassion, to kindness, to humility, to meekness, to patience, to forbearance, to forgiveness, and ultimately to love. If we do that, then I have hope that God is truly in our midst, forming us and shaping us into his image and his likeness more and more. And that will come out of this stronger, not just intact, but actually stronger, because we'll be becoming more like Christ. Put on the new self, Paul said, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. To, to do this, to follow this call, is to become more like Jesus, to bear his image more in the world. Therefore, I think we'll come out of this better if we are willing to do this together. But ultimately, it's up to us, each one of us. Will we commit to this together? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.